Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going through the Christmas narratives in Luke chapters 1 and 2, and we're kind of looking at these different episodes. And uh, we've been doing this for the weeks leading up to today, and then today we're going to jump into Luke 2, verses 25 to 35, and it's the story of Simeon, an older gentleman who has the opportunity to lay eyes on the baby boy. And having done that, he sings a song. And so we're going to look at this narrative. I'm going to read it uh, together with you. We'll put the verses up on the screens as well so you can track that way. Uh, But let me read verses 25 to 35. We'll pray and then we'll get to work. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would use this time to awaken our hearts to the reality of who Christ really is. And we pray, Lord, that we would um, take this opportunity that by your Spirit, God, you would move us, that you would help us to consider this great salvation that you're offering to us even this afternoon and uh, help us to discern the greatness of this good news that you sent your Son into the world for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look at this under three headings. As we look at the story, there are kind of three main headings that can help guide our way through this. The first is the Spirit of God. The second is the salvation of God. And finally, the call of God. And all of those are very, very important aspects of the ministry that we think of at Christmas time. First off, the Spirit of God. When you look at Simeon in those early verses there, one of the things that kind of rises to the surface is the fact that the Holy Spirit is actively at work in his life. The Holy Spirit of God is doing something with this individual that's really drawing him to this moment with a child. And so the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I want to suggest to you today, is still very much in play. The Holy Spirit of God is at work even now, and he might be doing something in this moment for you. So let's look at Simeon and think through some of those connections there. Now, if you're familiar with the presentation of the Bible, God is one God. He's the only God. He's the true God, but he is present in three different persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, how that mathematically works, I'm not sure. It's a mystery, but it's what the Bible presents, that there is one God, and that God is presented to us as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that kind of part of God, that person of God, that reality of God that is immaterial, that's spiritual, And uh, older translations call him the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost of God is able to do some things. And I want to suggest that he's at work right now 
and he's at work in your home and your, you know, where you're sitting right now in here in the, at the tree farm. He's at work and he's doing some things. So let's look at this uh, ministry of his. First off, he's present. Verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Listen to this. And the Holy Spirit was on him. Okay, what does that mean? So if you, look at, if you looked at him, what would you notice about him? Well, Luke is, is able to kind of, through that spiritual perspective, writing after the fact, he's able to say, God was doing something there. God was present. So you might just see this ordinary dude, but if you really knew what was happening, you'd understand the Holy Spirit of God is on him. The Holy Spirit of God is putting its, his weight into this individual. He's present. It's the same word that they use later on when Jesus is baptized. This time there's a physical thing that kind of helps them to understand that spiritual reality. When Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water and it says that a Holy Spirit came down on him, something like a Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and lands on him. So the Holy Spirit is present in Simeon's life. The Holy Spirit is revealing things. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. In other words, the Spirit of God gives him some, maybe you would put it like this, an intuition, an impression. The Holy Spirit does something inside of him where he says, I will see the Lord's Messiah before I pass away. So maybe he goes home to his wife and he says, hey, sweetheart, I know this might sound weird, but I know that I will see the Lord's Messiah. And she would say, well, how do you know that, honey? And he would say, well, I don't know, but I know. There's something that God has done in me where I have this awareness because the Spirit revealed it to me. So the Spirit does this revealing ministry. The Spirit does this ministry of leadership. Look at verses 27 and 28. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Spirit's moving him. When, when the parents brought in this child, Jesus, to do for the child what the custom of the law required, Simeon took this baby in his arms and praised God. What's the Spirit doing there? The Spirit is moving him. He's, the Spirit's kind of helping him get into the place where he needs to be. He's moving him, physically moving him by the Spirit into the temple court so that there's that divine arrangement of God. All right, here's what I wonder. Entertain me here for a moment, and maybe this will spook you out. What if there really is a Holy Ghost? What if God wasn't kidding when he presented the Bible to us, and what if he's very much active and alive today, and what if he's doing the same sorts of things he was doing back then? What if the Spirit today has been exercising his ministry on you, meaning he's putting his weight on you? He's making himself known to you. So that you might look at everyone in here and everyone sitting at home and you go, well, we just kind of look like ordinary people. But if we could see what's really happening right now, we would discern, we would be aware of the fact that God is present. And what if that God is revealing something to you? His ministry is to take you to the Son and He's revealing this truth. And you will walk away saying, I know this to be true. How do you know that? I don't know, but I know. Because the Spirit of God has revealed something to me. And what if you've been moved by the Spirit to be present here today? Online watching or here at the tree farm, what if this is a work of God? And you might say, well, yeah, but I made all these choices and I'm just trying to appease my family members and, and here I am. But what if we were able to see what's really going on behind the curtain? 
And we saw that God is actively at work in your life. And this is no mistake, but he has moved you into this moment because he wants to reveal his son to you. What if God is real? What if God is making an invitation today to understand something about Christmas that goes well beyond all the sentiments that we have about a holiday? What if God has brought you to this moment to present his son to you as Savior? That's what I think God is up to every Christmas time. That's why I think you're here. And yes, I would agree with you that you made a lot of choices and it wasn't against your will per se. You were here, but maybe it is the work of the Holy Spirit that brought you to this moment. So secondly, the reason why is because God wants to show you the salvation that he's offering you, the salvation of God. Now, this salvation is a baby in this story. This salvation is a child. But this salvation is described in a bunch of different ways, so let's look at some of the terms that are used. It's a consolation. Verse 25, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. There's something about this saving work that is going to be a comfort. It's going to console the people of God as they've been through hardship and difficulty. But this salvation will be the consolation of Israel. This salvation is also the Lord's Messiah. Look at verse 26. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That's, a, that's an incredible term. It's a term freighted with all kinds of anticipation. There's a Savior King coming who is going to reestablish the people of God. He's going to set things right again. And Simeon has this opportunity to say, here he is, the Lord's Messiah, the Savior King, the promised one. It, it talks about this being a promise fulfilled. Look at verse 29, sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. God, from the very beginning of the Bible, has been making a promise about this child, that this child is going to undo the effects of the curse and is going to crush the enemy. And he's able to say, this is that promised one. This is that salvation that God is offering us. He calls it God's salvation. Look at verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation. Whatever you're doing, God, this is it. It's all bound up in this little child here. This is your salvation. The Savior is a global Savior. He has relevance for all peoples and all places of all times. Look at verses 31 and 32. This salvation is the salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. This salvation is for everybody. It's for the people in that first century. It's for people in Rockton, Illinois. It's for us. And it's for all peoples and all places of all times. This is a global reality that God is presenting. It is his son. And it is the glory of Israel. Verse 32, the glory of your people, Israel. So here's the question we have to wrestle with. What does that mean? We have all these awesome terms to think about this child, but what does that actually mean? I mean, what is God doing when he says he's brought his salvation? What are we being saved from? Well, in the first century, as I've mentioned before, one of the ideas of salvation would be a political salvation. The Israelites are in trouble. They're, uh, they're not able to express themselves in the way that they feel is appropriate as the people of God. They're Roman occupied. Uh, there's oppression that's going on. There's, there's a desire that the Messiah king would come and set things right again and give them kind of that political experience where they could just pursue God without anybody messing with that. And that was one of the expectations. And it's very much an expectation today. 
People have a political vision for if this were to come true, if this candidate were to do these things, if these policies came true, then we would be able to do what God really wants us to do. But what if salvation is much better than that? What if it isn't just a political salvation? What if what God is offering us isn't some circumstantial change, but it's a revolution? And it's a remaking, not just of the experience of people, but remaking humanity itself. What if he's saving us, not just from bad things, but what if he's saving us from sin? That's exactly what the narrative tells us. It tells us that God is bringing a salvation that actually starts on the interior. He's saving us, and it'll touch on all these other realities of you know, politics and economics and relationships and all of that, but really it begins with this issue of sin. In fact, we, we found out about that in the previous chapter. In Luke chapter 1, it tells us about the ministry of John the Baptist, and it says this about his ministry. He's going to give his people, the people of God, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That's what salvation entails. God is coming to town to change this problem that we have with our sinfulness. He's going to change us from the inside out. And so salvation is much better than a lot of the things that we imagine this time of year. Some of us think, man, there's an economic crisis. I'd love for Jesus to step in and fix my finances. You know, things have been hard this year. I wish he'd come and exert his power and make my, you know, checkbook feel a little bit better. My ability to purchase things feel a little bit more realistic. Maybe that's how we're considering things right now. Or maybe we're thinking, you know what? My relationships are broke. I'd love for Christ to come in and fix some of that. I know that he's powerful and he's a reconciler. I hope that he can come in and fix my relationships. Or we think, you know what? Yeah, this is a political crisis that we're going through. And I wonder if God would come in and set things right again. And all of that, you know, all of that is important. But what I'm saying here is that God is offering us a salvation that is much, much better. It is the salvation from sin and it will have implications for everything I just mentioned. But we have to recognize that God sent his savior, not to improve our circumstances, but to improve us. He's going to deal with our sinfulness. He comes to confront our sins. Are you familiar with C.S. Lewis? He's a famous author. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and many other published works, but he has an autobiography about his conversion. It's called Surprised by Joy. He was an atheist, but then he became a, a Christian. And he writes about that. He tells the story. He calls it Surprised by Joy. He became a believer. In fact, if I remember correctly, he was in the sidecar of a motorcycle and he started out his journey as an atheist and he arrived as a believer. And he says, that was joyful. But one of the precursors to that experience of joy was another experience. It's the experience of conviction. It's what we have to have to be actually saved. C.S. Lewis in his book, he puts it like this. This is when he was examining his heart. And he said this, for the first time, I examined myself with a serious practical purpose, and there I found what appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. He says, the, the experience of becoming a Christian was one that I called joy. But there was an aspect of it where I had to realize my need for a savior, and that wasn't pleasant. Because I looked into my own heart, and I found a bunch of things that are appalling to me. I found a sinful condition that, that only God could remedy. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Christmas is about God 
coming to town and offering us forgiveness of sins, changing us from the inside out. So what if we think about this moment and we, we, we wrestle with this reality that maybe Christmas is about more than just goodwill toward others. It's about more than being charitable or kind. It's way more than a sentimental holiday. What if Christmas is an invitation of divine rescue? What if what that baby boy had come to be and do for us is God saving us from our sins and all sorts of other implications as well? What if Christmas is about the remaking of humanity? And what if the Holy Spirit led you here today to consider that, to reflect on that, to take that seriously and wrestle with your own heart and your own soul to to wonder if, is that really true and have I received that divine gift, that divine offer? That's the third thing that we find here. I'm calling it the call of God, but it's basically the fact that when God presents his son, he does it in such a way where you can't just dispassionately observe it. Uh, It's not an option. When, When God sent his son, The reality of who that child is and what he will do is so profound that you can't walk away and go, well, that was fascinating, but it doesn't really affect me. No, there's a call that is demanded from you. You either look at him and say, this is the Messiah, this is the Savior, this is the one I'm trusting in, or you don't. So when when Simeon describes the child with all these impressive titles, The parents are blown away by that. Look at verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon looks them directly in the face and he says, guys, I know this is going to be hard to hear, but your child is going to be a problem. Your child is going to be a problem because on account of him, humanity is going to be divided. People will either receive him or they won't. So listen to it here in verses 34 and 35. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This child of yours, he's going to divide humanity. There will be some who will be raised up. In their humble estate, they will be raised up to glory. There are some who are proud and they will be humiliated. He will be spoken against. People will look at him and they will, they will despise him. They will hate everything that he's come to do for them in their own self-righteousness and pride. He will reveal the hearts of many. And even Mary will be pierced with this sword. So Jesus is the one who we have to respond to. Will we embrace him as Savior, or will we reject him? There's no mushy middle here. Jesus himself understood this ministry when he grew up. In Matthew chapter 10, he was interacting with a crowd, and he's explaining what he, what he demands as a response. This is Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. He says to them, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. There it is, that dividing reality. And if you, look at the, if you look at the context, you find out that this is a dividing reality that'll show up in families. In verse 35, uh, parents and their children could be on different pages. And Jesus is saying, that's the kind of thing that happens when you interact with me. I might divide a family. Some people might believe me and embrace me, but some might reject me. 
Earlier, the, the previous verse, verse 33, tells us it's on account of whether or not people embrace him or disown him. So Jesus is telling us in his arrival and then later on in his own public ministry, he's saying, you have to choose. You, you have to decide what I am for you. You have to either embrace me as Savior or you're actually rejecting me. You're dismissing me as insignificant. But Jesus is demanding a response. And that's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is somebody who looks at the Savior and they say, I needed rescue from my sins. And the only person who could accomplish that is Jesus Christ. I needed him and I trusted in him. I placed my faith in him for salvation. And therefore, this call of God is something that I want you to consider today. I want you to walk out of here with a confidence that you've either placed your eternity in his hands or you haven't. But the invitation is there for you. You need to be a person who recognizes all that this saving one has come to do. Now, it does show up. I can illustrate it in a few different ways. I mean, how, how you think about Jesus will eventually emerge, and it does in the gospel narrative. It's the difference between people who are self-righteous and people who are poor in spirit. People who are self-righteous are appalled at Jesus. They look at him and what he demands from them, and they hate it because their own righteousness to them feels good enough. And then they look at the way that he cares for other people who are less likely to receive God's grace in their estimation, and they hate it. This is what David, David Garland says in his commentary. He says, one particular sore point that will evoke hostility will be the breadth of hospitality that God offers to sinners, outcasts, Samaritans, and Gentiles. In other words, when you look at somebody who's different than you, if you feel like God shouldn't love them, he should not love them. He loves people like me. Look at me. I'm at a church service. I'm watching online. We, we have this self-righteousness about us, but then if we look at somebody else and we go, they voted wrong. God could never love somebody who voted like them. Or, or they're just, they're such awful people. God, God doesn't love them. That means that you don't understand who the Savior is. The difference is the difference of spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones who come to God empty-handed and say, God, I don't, I don't have much except for my sinfulness, but I believe that you can do something here. I trust in you. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Simeon is suggesting. This child is going to be the downfall of some, but he's going to raise some up. And I want to be on that side of being raised up because I'm humble enough to say, my greatest need is him. And he has come to be my savior. So church family and guests, I believe the Holy Spirit led you here today. I believe he's exerting his ministry on you. He's revealing some things to you. He's moved you into this physical space so that you could hear about the Son of God. I believe that Jesus Christ is salvation. Trusting in him is what God wants for you, and it will set things right again. And I believe that God is calling for your response, that you will either acknowledge him as Lord and Savior or not. But that is the most important thing that you could do this Christmas. So would you pray with me, please? And then we'll move into a time of continued worship. But let's bow our heads and our hearts and ask that God would use this time to help us. Lord, we are grateful for the salvation that you brought, the sending of your son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. 
Lord, that is a truth that we depend upon as Christians. And for anyone who's listening to this, anyone who's watching online, anyone who's physically present here today, would you use this moment by the power of your Holy Spirit to make this a significant issue for them? Lord, if people need to lose sleep wrestling over these truths, Lord, would you take away their peace? Lord, would you help each and every person who can hear my voice to trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior? And then let us celebrate this holiday appropriately. Lord, you are the Savior of the world. And so we commit this time to you. We commit our hearts to you. We ask that you would continue to incline our hearts to worship you. In Jesus' name.